Well, I'm going to take a break from the life of Christ as a man to come to Christmas a bit in Sunday school. And so we're going to go to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2 this morning. And then at 10.45 we have a lot of music. And then we have another message on the life of Christ. Emmanuel. That'll be at 10.45. And so let's take a look at Luke chapter 2. And then we'll pray as we... Uh, this class. Thank you, Lord, for letting us assemble. We pray for your blessings on what is taught here in classes. We pray that you would give us a blessing as we look again and reflect upon the birth of your son. We pray, Father, for you to uh, encourage our hearts and warm our hearts uh, to how blessed we are to know Christ as our Savior. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Luke chapter 2. None of these verses are new to anybody. But it's good to review and look over, again, these scriptures that are common to all of us. Luke chapter 2, and I'll read from verse number 8 down through verse 18. Ten verses. Luke chapter 2, verse number 8. And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the fields, keeping watch over the flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were so afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you, ye shall find the babe wrapped in swathing clothes, wrapped lying in a manger. And suddenly, verse 13, there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Lord and God in highest, and on earth peace, good will toward men. Verse 15, And it came to pass, as the angels were gone away from them into heaven. Well, that's where angels came from. It came from heaven. And the shepherds said one to another, Let us now go even unto Bethlehem, and see this thing which is come to pass, which the Lord hath made known unto us. Verse 16. And they came with haste. What does that mean? They walked as fast as they could. They're in a hurry. Because it's Black Friday. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. Verse 17. And when they had seen it, they made known abroad the saying which was told them concerning this child. Verse 18. And all that they heard, and all they that heard it wondered. They wondered at those things which were told them by the shepherds. Now, the lesson today is about that word wondered. They wondered at those things which were told them by the shepherds. Now, uh, to begin the lesson today, there are some things in this world that are wonders. Have you heard of the seven wonders of the world? You know, they changed the list now. They used to be the seven wonders of the ancient world. They would be like the Great Pyramids of Giza, the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, the Statue of Zeus at Olympia. Those are three of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Now we have a new list. Seven wonders of the modern world. <laughs> Ancient modern, uh, the modern world. And uh, the modern world was compiled by the American Society of Civil Engineers in 1994. And so they had modern wonders of the world. Empire State Building, Golden Gate Bridge, Panama Canal. And I put there to devise man-made Palm Islands in 2001, that's my choice. Those are modern wonders. And then we have another list. Seven wonders of the natural world. Well, we can go endlessly with these wonders. Natural world, what would be natural to you that's a wonder? 
Grand Canyon's one of them. Mount Everest, Victoria Falls, Great Barrier Reef are just four of the seven natural ones of the world. Then there is another list. Can you believe it? The new, the new seven wonders of the world. This is from a compilation of seven years of work. It took seven years to come up with a list of the seven new wonders of the world. And it took over 100 million people worldwide to vote to come up with the, okay, this is what people think the seven natural wonders of the new world. Here it is, number one, the Great Wall of China. That's a wonder. Christ the Redeemer, Statue of Brazil, 98 feet tall. Remember that? You seen that picture? Okay. And then you have uh, another one not important. You have the Taj Mahal. And another of the seven wonders of the new world is the Honolulu Rail. <laughs> <laughs> Every time I see the room, who's in it? Nobody. Nobody. Everybody I talk to, you ride the room. No, you ride the room. Not convenient. And so it's a wonder, isn't it, that the thing was even built. <laughs> so uh, the word wonder is about uh, something that gets your attention, something that is, wow, it's awesome, it's amazing, it gets you, it grabs you. And so... Uh, John Peterson, who's a great songwriter now in heaven, he wrote a cantata called The Wonder of Christmas. It's a beautiful cantata. Uh, the definition of wonder is marvel, something extraordinary or surprising. It's to stun. Oh, that was stunning. Oh, she is stunning. Oh, that dress was stunning. It, oh, wow. See, so the idea of the shepherds thought about the birth of Christ and the people that heard that story they wondered at those things which were told them by the shepherd. So the word today is wonder. The wonder of Christmas, the wonder of the birth of Christ. Now in Isaiah 9, 6, it says that one of his names is wonderful. Wonderful. Now wonderful is two words. Wonderful. Wonder. Stunning. Awesome. Gives my attention. Full. Something full of wonder. So one of the names of Christ is he is wonderful he is full of wonder when you think about him you study about his life and about his birth it's stunning it's awesome the word awesome is overused in our modern way of talking but uh, it's a good word to say that the life of christ the birth of christ it is wonderful it is a wonder it is awesome and so that would be appropriate for the, the thought this morning that the, the the christmas story is a wonder the birth of christ is a wonder it's full of wonder now, there are some things about his life and his birth that is worth considering because it is full of wonder. First of all, the wonder of fulfilled prophecy. Number one, the wonder of fulfilled prophecy. The birth of Christ was not just, oh, baby's born, oh, Mary, oh, Joseph, oh, Bethlehem, oh, just incidental kind of thing of here. It was a wonderful thing because it is a fulfillment of prophecy. So the reference that you want to look at is in... Um, Micah 5 2, where it says Bethlehem, Ephrathah would be the place where Jesus would be born. Now, did you know that there are two Bethlehems? There's a Bethlehem where Jesus was born, and there's a Bethlehem that's in another part of that uh, region, and it's not the one that he was born in. And so when Jesus was born, he fulfilled the prophecy of Micah at the right Bethlehem. At the right Bethlehem. There's not the Bethlehem of Zebulun, Joshua 19. That's the other Bethlehem. This one is the Bethlehem near Jerusalem in Judah. And so the prophecy is very specific. It's a wonder that the prophecy given 700 years before he was born 
it came real, it came true. It happened like the prophet said. That's a wonder. That is awesome. That is stunning that it could be that way. He could have been born in the wrong Bethlehem. The prophet would have been inaccurate. But no, God worked it out so that he was born in the right Bethlehem. Bethlehem, Ephrathah. And so Bethlehem, the city of David, the family home of King David, uh, where he was anointed king. And um, of course, in the New Testament, citizens had to go back to their origin of birth city. And yes, you have to go back to Bethlehem. Mary's husband. Now, you think they would have gone back there, made a travel, made, a, made, a, made an effort to go there, uh, if it was not an order to go there, if the government said, you need to do this? Well, you learn that God is in control of the world, once again, of people, of kings, of nations, of governments. And when the water was given by Caesar to go back to your place of origin of birth for taxation, registration, all these kind of things that's important to Rome, little did he know that he was being used like a pawn on a chessboard by God to get his will fulfilled. Doesn't that tell you something about how things are? And the practical lesson from that is whatever is in this world that's so bad it appears to be bad, maybe it's just God moving a chess piece, or I don't play chess, I'll say checker, a checker piece. I even play Chinese checker. We'll play Chinese checker, man. It doesn't make any sense. Marble here, marble there. I do marbles like that. That's the way I play it. Marbles. And so uh, when you think about life and you think about the story of Christmas and his birth, you find out that God is in control of the affairs of men and he's not off in the distance somewhere on a rocking chair, growing old, becoming feeble. But he is involved in the affairs of men so far from heaven on this tiny speck in this little solar system on this planet called Earth, in this place called Israel, and he's fulfilling prophecy little, little at a time. Here, little, there, little, little bit at a time. And when the order was given, go back, oh, you have to really go back, go back or else. They went back there, did the, the legal business, get everything set up, and not knowing that it was God who was orchestrating like a conductor uh, his plan to be fulfilled in this world for the Redeemer to be born in the right place to fulfill prophecy so that our confidence in the Bible is strengthened to know it happened like that, like it said, therefore we can trust the Bible, we can trust God's wisdom about all things. It makes sense, doesn't it? It happens to be true. Alright, so the wonder of fulfilled prophecy and Micah's prophecy was fulfilled to the letter when Jesus was born and the takeaway is have confidence that God is able to work out things even though when things don't look so good. Uh, telling you that, I need to also tell you by applying the Bible to today, uh, flat tire, car breaks down on the way to work, um, tsunami, unexpected snow collapses your roof, uh, unexpected heat, and you know, a lot of things can go wrong. And we look at the incident, we look at the experience and say, oh no. And at the moment it seems like it's very tragic. Um, we could apply to many things. Then you realize, well, the prophet said, in Bethlehem, Ephrathah, not Bethlehem, only Zebulun. Mm -hmm. So Jesus was born in the right place 
because the circumstances, quote, forced them to go to that town. And if it wasn't for that, they wouldn't have gone there, perhaps. So you look at that, you say, okay, Lord, by faith, I trust you for all things because you can do that at the birth of your son. I think you can do that in my life or in this world today. This is why when it comes to, say, politics or elections, we do want good people in office. You should want that. You don't want your freedom taken away from you. You don't want to just sit back passively when you can be doing something about something to affect the outcome. And we all have an outcome, a factor in the outcome if we're responsible. And if you've done everything you can do, then the results are not really in your hands anymore. The results are in the hands of God who controls the nations and rules the world. And so it's all good to do the right thing when it comes to politics, but you also have to balance it out by saying, okay, I've done the right thing, now, Lord, it's up to you to bring about the results that you think is good for us. Sometimes a result that's negative is because it's still good for us. Sometimes we want something that's peaceful and calm and soothing and all our way and less taxes, less freedom is being removed from our lives and less more privacy, whatever. Uh, all good things. And yet it seems like, oh, it ain't going to happen this way. Newsom's going to be president. What? Well, that'd be pretty horrible. From his track record, you cannot you cannot divorce the track record from what a guy will do, no matter what he says. I was watching uh, debates in uh, Canada's parliament, and the prime minister Trudeau, he is a real character to say kindly. And the other side, the conservative side, there's a there's a man who's going to run for office for the prime minister's part. He's very good. He's he speaks with fact, with with evidence, and he just uh, he just tell the truth now you got to have that stuff going on because you don't want irresponsibility to be irresponsible say well this was god's will no wait a minute wait a minute if you're going to go from wainai to kailua you better be sure you got gas in your car you got a four tank gas you're not going to say lord get me there if you get me there it's fine if you don't get me there it's your will it could be you're just not responsible so fill up the gas tank and go and trust god for safety okay so that's a part of that and so Bethlehem means house of bread. Oh, that's very interesting, isn't it? Bethlehem, house of bread. Now, we all are familiar with good bread. My wife makes good bread, and uh, she makes for people, and I eat half of it, so they don't get it, so you have to make more. But Bethlehem means house of bread. Uh, house of bread because the elevation is higher, 2,500 feet in the terrain, uh, good soil, good rain, very fruitful land. House of bread, plenty there, plenty there in Bethlehem. Residents are well-fed. People come over there to get well-fed too. Doesn't that speak of something about the place where Jesus was born and who he is? That's there, born in heaven, house of bread, house of plenty. Well, spiritually speaking, do you not see some symbolism there about Jesus Christ, house of bread? Isn't he called the bread of life in John chapter 6? He did say I'm the bread of life. He said, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. He said, eat of me, you'll never hunger. And you never thirst to be drinking me. That's all about him being able to fulfill man's greatest needs. We have a need for food. Now you try to tell yourself you don't need food. Try going for 10 hours without eating food. See how you feel. Try going for 12 hours without eating. See how you feel. See how you behave when you're not have anything to eat. Most good people, they get grouchy when they haven't had food to eat. Most, most men 
most husbands are nicer to their families than they've had a good something to eat. Isn't that true? Now, don't ever ask your husband to do something for you if he's not had lunch or breakfast or dinner. Always ask after you've given him a good meal. He will give you everything up to half of his car. Okay? And don't ever ask your wife. So you understand the point here. And so uh, we all need to have that. And, but he is the bread of life, which means he's satisfied spiritually. That'd be John chapter 6, verse number 33, 34, 35. And so this, the wonder of his birthplace, miraculous, prophecy fulfilled. The wonder of Christmas, they wondered about the Shepherd said about the birth of Christ, and so we're talking about the wonder of Christmas. Number two, the wonder of his sinless life. The wonder of his sinless life. Number one, the wonder of his birthplace, prophecy fulfilled. The second thing to wonder about is the wonder of his sinless life. Now, how is it possible for Jesus Christ to be sinless? Uh, Peter says there was no God found in his mouth. The book of Acts says he went about doing good, and everything he did was good. The Father from heaven says, This is my beloved Son, whom I'm well pleased. He's not just pleased with him, he is very pleased with him. Right. Now, no child is very pleased, well pleasing to their parents. Maybe they grow, grow up in mature to the place where they are more obedient, more respectful, everything like that. But um, no child is born like Jesus Christ was born of, uh, of the Virgin Mary. Uh, just so she was not involved in that conception, conceived of the Holy Ghost. And that's how he could be sinless without sin. Because there's no human blood in his system. He had blood in his system, but it was not it, it was not Joseph's blood in his system. It was God's blood. You find that from Acts chapter 20, where it says God shed his blood. Where God died. Well, how could God die? God never dies. But in the man Christ Jesus, he died on the cross as a man. So that's the understanding of that. So what you see here is that Jesus Christ is a wonder because of his sinless life. Uh, now, when Jesus was tempted in Matthew 4 and Luke 4, remember how severe that was, the temptations? There were three temptations on Jesus. I talked about that not long ago. But when he was tempted by the devil, he was tempted with things that appeals to man. He was tempted with things that appeals to man's pride. What makes a man feel good about himself? Got a good job, got a good income, got a nice car, got a nice house. Uh, he's good looking. Well, we can't depend on that. There, there are some men in this world, they think they're so handsome, you know what I mean? They think they are the cat's meow, whatever that means. They think they're just so bowed up and bowed up before me because I'm in the room. Uh, there's certain actors, you know, I think George Hamilton, or George, George Hamilton, one of those actors where he has artificial suntan, goes to a tanning booth, and he thinks he's good looking. You know how you know? You can just tell what people think they're good looking. Some men in the South, in North Carolina, they think they're good looking. It's just a natural thing. They don't. I don't think they, they go about thinking that they're handsome or appealing to anybody, but they just have an air about them. You can sometimes guess, and maybe you could be wrong, but sometimes people, they carry themselves in such a way where they think they're... <laughs> um, some people, some people, uh, they just believe that they are so, so good looking. But a man cannot depend on that uh, as far as his being good. No man is good enough like Jesus Christ. No man is sinless like him. Every man, every man um, has a problem. But Jesus Christ did not have a problem because he was sinless. 
And when he was tempted by the devil, he did not break. He was like that famous picture of a lighthouse in Italy or France where the waves come crashing against it and there's a man opening the door standing like that. It's a famous picture. Posters have made about this real picture, this real lighthouse. And the waves hit that thing, must be about 40 feet high. And the, the lighthouse is staying like that. It doesn't move. Jesus Christ was hit by the devil here, hit by hit in his pride, hit in his ego, hit he just battered, but he just stands firm like that. And so Jesus Christ, I was trying to say that he was tempted in all points, yet without sin. But no man is like that, only Jesus Christ. It's a wonder that he is sinless, though we know why he's sinless. You'd be a wonder if a man says he's sinless. You ever tell people about how to be saved? They say, oh no, I'm not a sinner. People say, I'm not a sinner. People have said that, I'm not a sinner. People have said, no, I don't need to be saved. I'm good, I'm good, I'm good. Really, are you really good enough to go to heaven? Can you stand before God one day and say, I belong here. <laughs> here I am, I belong here. Well, actually, no, you don't belong there because you're not good enough. You're not righteous. You are sinful. It's a wonder that Jesus Christ is sinless. He was tempted on all points like as we are, yet without sin. And if you want to understand that a little bit more fully, just think about when you're tempted with sin. When you're tempted with sin, most people who are trying not to sin, feel pressure to give in to the temptation. The temptation is not sin, but when you when you give in to it and you commit it, then it becomes sin. But most people who are faced with temptation, we, we, we tend, there's a tendency for us to gravitate toward the temptation. You ever play as a kid this game? And your friend says, you tell your friend, and your friend across the room says, you do this. And he comes. Temptation says, come. And you say, what? Well, I don't want to do that. I know it's wrong. And, and yet we, we walk toward this. We come in this direction. Jesus was tempted like that, but it was just a, it was like this. <laughs> you ever see those guys who uh, construction zones on the highways? Some of these local people, they're really not really enthusiastic. They're standing over here with their hard hat on. And uh, you know they hold up a yield, slow down or go or stop, and you got somebody like this, and they do this. Uh, you can't see, but they do this. <laughs> or they do this. What does that mean? <laughs> I don't know what that means. And then they get mad at you because you you're waiting to what is the clear? I don't have any clear direction. And they look at you and say, "Come on, come on." Well, now I understand what that means now. So um, the temptation was very strong, but he didn't give in to it. He just stayed there. No man, no man yeah. ever resisted like he resisted because we have sinful flesh. And even this makes us come. And everyone has succumbed to temptation of some kind in their life. No man is exempt, no woman is exempt. And so, but Jesus Christ was exempt. It's a wonder that he was sinless, but we understand why he was sinless. And then let's look at something else about the wonder of Christ born and Christ on earth. You have the first one with the wonder of his, wonder of the place of his birth, fulfilled prophecy. Then the wonder of his sinless life is the third thing. The wonder of his compassion. The wonder of his compassion. Turn to Mark chapter 1. Mark 
chapter one has a verse in this chapter that makes you realize, oh, he had a lot of compassion. Mark chapter one. Mark chapter one, verse number 38. And the Bible says this, and he said unto them, let us go into the next towns that I may preach there also. For therefore came I forth. You need to remember that Jesus Christ was a teacher and he was a preacher and wherever he went, he was not for a vacation or just to chill out or to relax. Although he probably did that here and there, I'm sure, because he was a man, but he went to the next towns primarily to preach and to teach. And so he says, for therefore came I forth, verse 39. And he preached in their synagogues throughout all Galilee and cast out devils. Now people don't make distinctions in the New Testament or in the Bible and say, well, the Bible says Jesus did this and the Bible says we'll do great works in Jesus, we can do this as well. You need to be careful about that kind of conclusion because not everything that you see in the Gospels is, is something you to copy or to mimic or to, to do again. This is a historical narrative. This is about what Jesus did. It doesn't mean you can do that. So you have to be careful about this. Uh, cast out devils. There are people today who make it their ministry to cast out devils and to do healings. And they fail because they are not empowered by God to do what he did. So you want to be careful about these healers and these so-called signs and wonders and all these different kind of things. Be careful about that because it's, it's capitalizing on something that is seen about is true, but not all of it is supposed to practice. Remember that. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, you have to rightly divide the Bible to come yeah. up to the right understanding and interpretation, okay? All right? Yep. Now, verse number 40. And there came a leper to him. What is a leper? A leper is someone who is diseased with leprosy, and he is ostracized from his family, from the camp. He can't be in public places. He is contagious, and he is deadly dangerous to everybody else that comes in contact with him. But watch carefully. And there came a leper to him. And that's why when lepers went, moved around, uh, and nobody could, if they were thoughtful, careful, the leper would say, unclean, unclean, because don't come near me. I'm unclean. Okay? Leprosy. And there came a leper to him, beseeching him, and kneeling down to him. This man is begging him, and saying unto him, If thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. That's a very interesting statement there, because it is he is saying, If you will, thou canst make me clean. He said, I know you can, if you will. I know you can heal me of my leprosy, if you will. If you're pleased to heal me of your leprosy, my leprosy, do that, please. Mm -hmm. So he's acknowledging God's power, Jesus' power to heal him. He's also admitting that it's up to the Lord to do it if he wants to or not do it. Okay, that's interesting right there. Verse number 41. And Jesus moved with compassion, put forth his hand and touched him. Now, wait a minute. He was moved with compassion, he put forth his hand and he touched him. Who did he touch? He touched a leper. He touched the leper. That's the part that gets the attention. He is moved with compassion and he put forth his hand and touched him and said unto him, I will be thou clean. And as soon as he had spoken, immediately the leprosy departed from him and he was cleansed. Now, if anyone today claims to be a healer, I would like to see that happen as it happened here. If they claim to do what Jesus could do, then they could have the they should have the result that Jesus had. Fair enough? Yeah. Immediately. Not some hidden internal organ issue healed. Not some mysterious I can't hear, now I can hear. 
not something I can't talk mouth and talk, but something real where you see it happen right there. That was real. And so the, the compassion part is Jesus said, the Bible says he was moved with compassion, so much so he put forth his hand and touched him. Uh, Francis, come here quick, please. Francis has leprosy. Come. Everybody don't like him because he's leprosy. He asked Jesus to touch him and heal him, if you will, and Jesus put forth his hand. Look, he's the man who says, unclean, unclean, keep your keep distance six feet apart. Fauci said so. But Jesus touched him. Well, now he put himself in jeopardy by touching him. He made contact with them. He disregarded what the CDC said. He just did that because he was willing to, to heal him. So the fact that he touched him showed he had compassion enough to risk his health, so to speak. Okay, thank you. So the touching him is the part that's important. So Jesus had compassion enough to touch someone who was unclean. Very interesting, isn't it? Has he touched anyone else that was unclean? What does leprosy represent? It represents sin. Sin is destructive. Sin is contagious. And when you make contact with sin, it infects you too. But he's willing to touch sinners to save them. Pretty interesting. The wonder of his compassion. Now come to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8. Verse number one and two. In those days, the multitude being very great and having nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples unto him and said unto them, verse two, I have compassion on the multitude because they have now been with me three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them away fasting to their own houses, they will faint by the way for divers of them came from far. So he had compassion on a man who was leprous. Now he has compassion on the crowds of people. So his compassion is for the masses. His compassion was practical. His compassion was first risky. Now his compassion was practical. They need something to eat. They need something to drink. I will provide for them. His compassion was practical. People can talk about compassion uh, and you know um, there's some groups called Compassion International feed the poor like that and they may be very good not criticizing them but if they just advertise okay we're going to collect all this money and it's going to go towards feeding the poor and uh, things like that if they never did that it's not real compassion that could be just greed or deception and so it's nothing unless the actual carrying on of what you say you have to affect people. Jesus' compassion in this case was very practical. Feed the people who are hungry. That's compassion. And sometimes people need that. Sometimes people need to know that you care for them, not by what you say, but because of what you do. And they're convinced that you are compassionate because, uh, yeah, they want to come to church. Yeah, they want to get saved. Yeah, but but I don't really think that that's what they want. They want something else. And there's something that's blocking them from believing what you say. And it could be not yes, not saying just. It could be that they don't believe that you're sincere because you don't show any compassion. I mean, you talk compassionately, you say how much Jesus loves you and how much He wants you to go to heaven, but they don't see it. They don't see something where you're not displaying compassion to them. Therefore, they okay. I hear what you're saying, but I see something different. Here, Jesus is showing compassion, real compassion, by doing something about people who are practically needing something to to eat. 
That's interesting thing right there. It's compassionate practical. And then uh, come to Luke chapter 7. Here's another part of his compassion. Luke chapter 7. Seven eleven. Whenever you see a seven eleven, think about this verse. Luke seven eleven. You know, seven eleven never closes on Christmas. Thanksgiving Day, they stay open. They make a lot of profit in those days. Good for them. Good, good business plan. Good business model, I think. All right. Um, Luke chapter seven, and verse number eleven through fifteen. And it came to pass the day after that he went into a city called Nain. And many of his disciples went with him and much people. He had a lot of followers. Now when they came nigh to the gate of the city, behold, there was a dead man carried out. It's a corpse. The only son of his mother. And she was a widow. And much people of the city was with her. Verse 13. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said unto her, Weep not. And he came and touched the bier, and they that bare him stood still. And he said, Young man, I say unto thee, Arise. This is something to behold if you were there. And he that was dead sat up. Now, can you imagine people had tele uh, um, cell phones back then? <laughs> All from the phone, video, camera, and pictures. And he that was dead sat up and began to speak. That would have gone viral in a second <laughs> all over Israel. And he that was dead sat up and began to speak, and he delivered him to his mother. And what do you find about his compassion in this short passage of scripture? He sees a dead corpse, a, a corpse. <laughs> he touches, sees the mother grieving, and he does what only he can do. And he gets life again. Now, which is very interesting because his soul went somewhere. His soul left him because he's dead. The soul does not stay in the body of death, it leaves the body. He went down to Paris, Abraham Bluesville. So when the Lord says, okay, get back to that, that means he 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 called the soul of that man back out from Abraham's bosom back into his body, which is very interesting to think about. That's like a science fiction movie. And so you find here he had compassion on this mother who was grieving. So his compassion is for the grieving. His compassion was risky, his compassion was practical, his compassion was for the grieving. It's a wonder that he is so compassionate. And then there's another thing that you wonder about. Number one, you wonder about his, you wonder about the birth of Christ, Bethlehem, fulfilled prophecy. You wonder about number two, do you remember what it was I said? Because I sure don't remember. Wonder about his sinless life. Then we wonder about his compassion. And then number four, we wonder about his humility. His humility. And for that, you go to that famous book, that famous chapter in the New Testament. It starts with a P. That famous book starts with a P in the New Testament. Can you guess what that book is? Starts with a P. Starts with a P. And in this book that starts with a P, it's a famous chapter that talks about his humility. The book is after the book of Ephesians. And the book starts with a P. That book is called the book of Philippians, chapter 2. Philippians, chapter 2. If you come down to verse number 8, here's a statement from the Bible about his 
humility and how we wonder at his humility. We wonder at his humility. Philippians chapter 2, verse number 4. Each verse leads to the main point about his humility. Philippians 2, verse 4. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Now, the verses say in verse 4, look not every man on his own things. Don't just think about yourself. Don't just think about yourself, but every man also on the things of others. In other words, now he's not saying get into everybody's business. He's not saying that, but he's saying, number one, don't just be stuck in your shell as if the universe revolves around you, like you're the sun of the solar system. The plants revolve around you. He says, you're not that. He says, look on the things of other people. Be concerned about other people as well. All right, verse five. Let this mind be in you. What mind? A mind that doesn't think about yourself, but a mind that thinks about other people. Verse five. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Verse six. Who, Jesus, being the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. He says, it's not wrong for you to think that I'm God, because I am God. Verse 7, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself. Okay, so there is the wonder of his humility that he would condescend to become a man. He would leave his rightful place in heaven for a period of time lay his royal robes aside, so to speak, and come down to earth as a humble baby and then live as a humble man, as a humble servant, and became, verse eight, obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Now that is humility, and we wonder at the humility of Jesus Christ, that he would bring himself down to that level so that he could reach sinful man. That's a wonder. Now, in Luke chapter 23, I'll just give you the reference. Luke 22, 37. It says this. For whether is greater, he that sitteth at need, or he that serveth. So the question is, who is the most important person at this, at this uh, banquet? The one who is at the dinner table, at the head table, or the one who is serving those guests? Who is more important? That is the proposition. Whether is greater, he that sitteth at need, or he that serveth. Well, in human terms, the servant is just a servant serving the guest of honor and the guest. The one who's the guest of honor, he is the most important one in the whole room. That'd be normal. Is not he that sitteth at meat? That's the question there. And he says, but I am among you as he that serveth. And you know what the Lord says here? He says, I am here. I'm the Messiah. I'm the King. I'm the Lord. I'm the Savior. But he says, I've come here not to walk around and expect to be adored although you should. He said, I've come here on this earth that I can serve you. I can do something for you. I've come to wash your feet. Remember that? I've come to wash. Oh, you can't wash my feet. Wash my whole body too. Well, I've come to wash your feet. He says, I have demonstrated you humility. So the Lord is saying, that's what I came for. I came to serve. He didn't come to be served, but he came to serve. That's humility. And so, imagine the contrast here. You have God. You have a Let's use a, a king. No, let's use how we want a president. No, let, let's use, okay, you have president, you have senator, you have, you have all these dignity, important uh, political people. Let's say, let's say, um, oh, let's say uh, <coughs> Governor Green. 
goes to your house and you drive by and he says, oh, that guy needs to cut his grass. And you said, Aiden says, should for a stop. He comes out, he said, hey, uh, I'm Governor Green. Oh yeah, hello Governor. Uh, I, I noticed that the grass overgrown and uh, we have a lot of rain here, but you know, I just feel like cutting grass. Can I cut the grass for you? No, 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 let me cut your grass. No, I want to cut your grass. He said, no, I can't just cut your grass. May I cut your grass? Well, where's your lawnmower? Oh, I can't borrow, I'll borrow your lawnmower. We'd like to cut your grass. And that'd be a servant. That'd be impressive. That'd be good press <laughs> if you do that. If any governor would do that or mayor or somebody important for them to step out of their limousine and let me let me change it to I got I got my trunk here of this limo I got my bag my gym clothes let me change it to my jeans and my work shoes and uh, put on my goggles and my whatever like that and he's got ready for well that guy's ready to serve okay so if he if that was what someone did you say wow the governor came to my house fancy saw my over and grass I didn't have time to cut it and he came off the cut and he cut it wow what a humble guy that's what we would say that's what we would say did you know there's some humble people in this world that you should know about um, there's a guy named Tim Tim played for a Florida football team became a uh, whatever he became became famous and then he went to college uh, professional football became famous there and then he moved around and then he got to the Denver Broncos this is the Denver Broncos as a starting quarterback this guy named Tim he would bring he would find out about uh, people that had children that were uh, needing of uh, medical attention and you know kind of a hard hard case and so he would somehow get a hold of them and he would offer to bring the family the whole family to a home game in Denver and the child who had the the, the problem and not just for the game day but for the whole week prior to the game he'd put them up in a hotel he'd pay all the expenses and everything and he signed this time gift to them and so Tim Dibble was a very humble guy maybe not was but maybe still is I hope so but he showed that he is just a God who had kindness and compassion and he was a servant he was humble and so don't you like people like that who don't walk like they're important <laughs> uh, Carlton is the highest guy because he talks about these experiences at the Hilton uh, during the Pro Bowl days when they came from the Hilton all the all-star football players would come there and you know the you know the values would take the cards and one of the big stars of the of the Pro Bowl um, doesn't matter who he was but one of the big stars uh, he didn't get his car brought back here fast enough there are two all-stars one uh, one guy was from the uh, Buffalo Bills Jim Kelly who is a Christian became a politician after his football career He's with this other guy from Dallas, the Dallas running back, really great player, but really lousy character. And uh, he got, the guy Smith got upset with the valets because they bring they bring cars fast enough. And so he told Carlton, don't you know who I am? Well, of course, Frank Carlton knew the football player. He said, don't you know who I am? Carlton in his Buddha head style would say, no, I don't know who you are, who are you? This guy's all pro football player. If I mention his name, you might know who he, he is, but he was so arrogant and so high and mighty. Don't you know who I am? And he says, I don't know who you are. No, I don't know who you are. <laughs> he answered his question. <laughs> I don't know who you are. And this guy was so upset. And then Jim Clay comes up to Carl this out. Don't mind him. He's just an idiot. <laughs> and we'll just wait for our car to call. He gave Carl a big tip, too. <laughs> That's Emmett Smith, all for running back big head, thinks he's important. Jesus Christ did not think he's important in that sense. He went about serving people 
And uh, the wonder of his humility, imagine the one who made everything stooped down to wash your feet, trim your toenails. That would be pretty humbling. Uh, sir, now the last one is the wonder of his patience. The wonder of his patience. Now, I'll just tell you the story and I'll give you the reference. Matthew 16, verses 13 through 17 tells me that Jesus Christ had supreme patience. The story is about a man named Peter. Peter one time said, Jesus asked him, uh, Peter, who do they say that I am? And Peter says, well, they say you're the son of God. And then Peter, Jesus turns to Peter again. He says, Peter, look at me. Peter, look at me. Who do you say that I am? It's one thing for what people say that I am, but it's nothing for you one of my disciples to tell me who you think that I am. So Jesus was very confrontational. Who do you think that I am? And Peter says, you're the, you're the Lord's Christ. You're the Son of God. And the Lord says, you're right about that. After he said that, a few days afterwards, a few weeks afterwards, Peter said, Jesus said to Peter, listen, the time will come, the time will come when the cock will crow three times you're going to betray me. And Peter says, I will never betray you. That's Matthew 16. Well, as we know, when they apprehended Jesus, took him away in the garden to illegal trials, Peter and the disciples scattered that night. And he's by the fire warming himself, and he's cussing. Imagine, disciple cussing. And then someone says, hey, I recognize that, that, that uh, accent. You're one of the disciples of Christ, right? He said, nah, nah, nah. and he began to, you know, and he just denied it. And, and before he knew it, he denied Christ three times. He felt horrible. Peter felt horrible because he denied the Lord. He just confessed, you are the Christ. You're the anointed one. And he denied him now. And he felt so ashamed. He felt so low. And then he hid away. He stayed away until after the resurrection of Christ. And then uh, he went back to fishing, went back to his trade. He said, ah. We were wrong. He, he, he was crucified. He didn't bring in no kingdom. He was, we were so deceived. And so he went back to fishing. And then the Lord is on the shore. And then they meet with him. He eats fish with them at the fire. He met the scene. And then uh, he tells Peter, Peter, you love me. You know, Peter said, by then Peter's a broken man. Peter suspects that he knows this is the Lord that I denied. And the Lord is kind to say, Peter, do you love me? He answered him. Yes, three times, do you love me? And the, the, the funny Peter says, Oh, Lord, you know that I love you. He says, Feed my sheep, feed my sheep. First, said, feed my lamb. So he's saying, Okay, look, I have patience with you. What he was saying by that, Feed my sheep, feed my sheep. What he was saying to him, after he denied him three times, is that, I'm going to be patient with you, Peter. What he was saying was, I know you failed me. You feel horrible. You should. But don't stay there. Don't stay feeling horrible. Get up on your feet, lift up the feeble hands and hang. Like in Hebrews, it talks about that. He said, get up and follow me and feed my sheep. He said, I'm giving you an opportunity to make up for your failures. That's what he's telling him. That's the patience of Jesus Christ. It's a miracle. It's a wonderful thing to know that he's patient with each of us. Now, if you don't think that's an important thing, you just, you just, you just fail sometimes. You just fail sometimes. You're going to feel horrible. You're going to feel like, oh, man, he'll never forgive me. Oh, man, he'll never. Peter, do you love me? I do. He did. He did. But he failed him. Lord gave him a second chance and a third chance and a fourth chance. In other words, 
uh, he forgave him because the Lord is patient. Now let's take one scripture and we're done for the for the morning. Come to uh, Psalm 103. Psalm 103. Here's how you can be patient with other people. It's when you remember how patient it is to you. Psalm 103, and look at verse number 8. It's a wonder that he is patient, and so we wonder at his patience. Psalm 103, verse number 8. The Lord is merciful and gracious. Peter says, Amen. Slow to anger, Peter says, Amen. And plant his mercy, Peter says, Amen. Verse 9, he would not always chide, neither would he keep his anger forever. Peter says, he should be mad at me, but he is not. I'm so grateful. Verse 10. He hath not dealt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward them that fear him. And as far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. Like as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear him. For he knoweth our frame, he remembereth that we are dust. Peter says, Amen, Amen, and Amen. Peter experienced the mercy of God, the patience of God, and uh, it's a good thing when we experience that as well. Alright, so we wonder at the birth of Christ, and these are some of the things we wonder about. Let's take a short break, and we'll begin at 1045, with a lot of music coming up, and a short Christmas message, and so uh, hang around, and uh, enjoy some coffee, and whatever back there. <laughs> 